Welcome to the Independent News Hour. In the headlines today, a taxi driver's protest outside City Hall enters its 17th day. 2,200 nurses go on strike in Buffalo. And the annual celebration of labor cinema returns to the big screen in New York. Good evening. In New York, I'm John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. In the news, debt-stricken taxi drivers have entered their 17th day of around-the-clock protest outside City Hall. They are demanding the mayor and city council cover the massive debts they incurred when the price of a taxi medallion collapsed after the city allowed Uber and Lyft to flood the streets with their own drivers who did not have to pay for medallions. This is some of the drivers chanting yesterday at their encampment on the sidewalk on the west side of City Hall. No more suicide! No more bankruptcy! No more suicide! No more bankruptcy! DLC live! We want justice! Talk to the union! Get forgiveness now! Get forgiveness! We'll speak with Baravi Desai of the New York Taxi Workers Alliance later in the show about how the city reaped hundreds of millions of dollars in taxi medallion sales a decade ago, but has since turned its back on cab drivers, many of whom owe hundreds of thousands of dollars. The COVID-19 pandemic has sparked an upsurge in worker militancy across the country in Buffalo. 2,200 nurses at the Catholic Health System went on strike Friday demanding higher pay and more staffing at the three hospitals run by CHS. These are some of the nurses that continue to walk the picket line. We dedicated our lives for our passion for our patients, and it's a crime the way they're treating us right now. I'm in my 37th year, and Catholic Health has no loyalty to me as I had to them. It's very upsetting. I cannot take it anymore. We're tired. We're hurt. We're angry. We're scared. In other labor news, the International Association of Thea- the International Association of Theatrical Stage Employees, or IATSE, announced Monday that 65,000 members at several Hollywood locals had approved a strike authorization vote. The vote was by more than 98 percent. The workers are demanding less grueling work schedules and are trying to prevent streaming services from further driving down pay and workplace standards. If IATSE members go on strike, it will be the largest private sector strike in the United States in 14 years. In other news, Governor Kathy Hochul is pulling the plug on the AirTran, a proposed $2.1 billion airport shuttle to LaGuardia Airport in Queens. It was championed by her predecessor, Andrew Cuomo. The project has been criticized as a boondoggle by transportation advocates and a number of Queens elected officials. This is Danny Perlstein of the Writers Alliance. Governor Hochul should pull the plug on Cuomo's pet project. New York doesn't need a $2 billion airport parking lot shuttle. There are many worthier ways to spend billions of dollars to improve public transit for the millions of people who live in Queens. And finally, the Workers Unite Film Festival returns to the big screen this week, starting Friday at Cinema Village Theater in Lower Manhattan. This is Andrew Tilson, the festival's executive director. Our festival seeks to find and network around the world with people telling the stories about global labor solidarity, people organizing and struggling and fighting to organize workers into unions and cooperative groups 
so that they actually take back the power that they actually do have since they are the means of production. They're the folks who create all the wealth for Jeff Bezos to go to the moon. The idea is that by telling their stories and truthfully telling their stories, We'll talk more with Andrew Tilson and a director of one of the feature films at the Work Easy Night Film Festival in the second half of the show. When we come back after this short break, we'll learn more about recent victories at City Hall won by New York City's 65,000 delivery workers and the organizing that went into that victory. As we go marching, marching in the beauty of the day. Red and Roses by Judy Collins, and you're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI Radio in New York. I'm John Tarleton, editor in chief of the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. You can find our latest news at independent.org. You can also find our October print edition on uh, street corner near you at, on, at our uh, red and white news boxes. We're also in uh, scores of public libraries and other venues across the city. Uh, so. Uh, for today's show, we're going to uh, have a, a, a focus on, on labor and, and uh, worker organizing. Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has spurred an upsurge in worker militancy across the country. Uh, for our first segment, we're going to turn to the struggle of New York City's 65,000 deliveristas. They deliver meals to your doorstep no matter the weather and the traffic they have to navigate through. After many months of organizing, they recently prevailed on city council to pass a package of laws that will make their work a little bit easier and ensure the apps they work for uh, pay them their tip money in a timely way. Uh, joining us to talk about uh, this is Hildeline Colon Hernandez, Director of Policy and Strategic Partnerships at the Worker Justice, Workers Justice Project. Hildeline, welcome to WBAI Radio. Hi, how are you? Doing great, and thank you for joining us. So first of all, can you just uh, uh, give our uh, listeners a sense of of what the uh, d- delivery workers have been up against and then the, the, the organizing campaign that was initiated to try to address some of these issues? Sure. Uh, so before the pandemic, uh, a, na- a new industry have surged in our, the streets of our cities, right, which is delivery. It's always existed, but right now have become a massive industry that allow the city and many of us to survive the pandemic, but also to move 
to keep moving the economic engine of the city as many restaurants were able to keep themselves open uh, doing that. Delivery workers, um, before there was a group, great group of people that used to work directly for the restaurants, but that dynamic have changed. Many of these delivery workers now uh, work for the apps and apps as DoorDash, Uber, um, Grubhub, and for example, another one called Relay, which is kind of like contracts directly for the restaurants. So these workers are independent contractors. Um, they carry most of, I would say, 90, 100% of the expenses of whatever they carry. They don't have um, uh, basically uh, in terms of rights or benefits. So during the pandemic, this become a very um kind of like very difficult for their survival because they were in the middle of the winter and they were the only ones in the street delivering not only food, but I also want to add that this uh, essential workers delivered medicine to many people that needed it uh, during this time. So they've been confronting that reality, but not only that we're dealing with the pandemic, but also that we're dealing with the reality that they didn't have PPE. They were not able to use the restroom um, and many of them suffered the issue about not getting pay uh, their tips. So that kind of like brought up a movement. And, and this is what uh, have become uh, what you just name as Los Deliberistas Unidos. Right. And and before we talk more about that, that movement and, and what it was fighting for, can you uh, tell us a little bit more about who uh, the Deliberistas are? Uh, they're mostly so- immigrants? Yeah, so it's a collective of workers, uh, mostly immigrants. Um, they tend to work in other industry and migrated to work for the apps as a full-time base. Many of them work between six to seven days a week, uh, work 12 hours days. And you see them in our street, right, going back and forth, as many of them use either um, e-bikes, regular bikes, or motorcycles. Um, mostly immigrants, different um, communities. We do have a large group of Hispanic workers. But also we have workers from Bangladesh, um, we have African workers, and we have other workers and many young people that are actually starting to do this industry. Right. And there was a, a really outstanding um, a cover story in New York Magazine about a, a, a month ago that, that profiled the situation with the, uh, the deliveristas. I think a lot of people maybe got a, a, a glimpse of what they're up against during the um, uh, Hurricane Ida storm, where there was the viral video of the of the young man uh, pushing his uh, bicycle uh, through uh, almost uh, waist or chest high water whilst uh, trying to keep the bag of food uh, dry. A- and um, a- anyway, that article really uh, was really powerful, and, and and you were one of the people uh, featured in that as well. That was uh, trying to find uh, solutions for. Uh, for this, uh, for the situation for the uh, delivery workers, uh, can you talk a little bit more about um, what you all zeroed in on? Is is things you initially wanted to change? So I think many of the issues uh, that the deliveries confronted um, have exacerbated as as this process kind of like it built. There's a lot of issues, obviously, with their safety. A lot of high numbers of uh, people that have uh, been a victim of theft on their bikes and the motorcycles. A lot of accidents on the street. That's something that we see an increase. And even we have lost uh, 17 workers in two years, in less than two years. Mm. Uh, they have lost their life actually work. Um, 
And and so they this work just endures everything. Uh, whether uh, Hurricane Ida, right, is the best example that even a hurricane it, happening in our city, these workers were out. Um, and it was kind of like a little concerning because, as I said, we remember the city was telling all of us, stay home, stay home, stay home for the safe, while the apps were telling workers, go out, go out, go out, and stay, and keep working because there was like an economic incentive to actually keep these workers out when there is like uh, rain or snow, right? Because many of us would like to have our food. They don't, we don't want to go out. Um, so that is what they have endeavored, and this is what have led into um, the organizing process, um, working together side by side. I think it's also the Cornell report where we're able to create a report to take the anecdotes or the realities that many of the apps always said, well, it was just one bad experience to actually show this is a systemic problem. This is a systemic reality of many of the delivery workers that they live every day. And and, and I think that is one of the things that the Lidibetistas have been able to accomplish and validate it, the reality. It is not like a one that that photo of what you just hide up with Hurricane Ida, that's the the feature that went viral. But there were thousands of the workers in the same reality, and I think that brought up to the surface the need for legislation, the need for regulation on a total unregulated industry. Right, and how did uh, how did you all go about organizing with the workers? I mean, they're obviously very busy just uh you know trying to make money and keep the apps uh, happy and, and i mean they have to really hustle just to stay kind of on the good list uh, of these apps the apps can cast them aside if they don't meet you know whatever uh metrics or algorithm the apps uh, ha- have set up so uh um how, how did the organizing come together i think the organizing came together first many of these workers um were members of Workers' Justice Project before, like, for example, Gustavo Ache, which is one of the leaders. He do construction, he have experience organizing, and have experience of using the organizing skills and getting together to better the conditions. So I, he moved to do this work and continue to do this work, right? Like, he has two jobs. He started bringing that to the, to the, to the workers and started congregating um, when there was a lot of food pantry and, and they started to kind of like find a space together to talk about, wait, this is a reality that I live, right? And 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 that has been the magic of getting them together. And they were out to organize already. I think was more how we collectively can change things, right? There's organization, how these workers work. There's an affiliation by nationality. There's a, there's a language affiliation. So everybody talks about what story they have encountered. And I think, but at the same time, they were like, we need to do something. This cannot keep going this way, right? Because we're, we're putting our lives at risk. We're the ones suffering some of the consequences. And I think that sparked it, that process of, of, of organizing. And, and as I said, of Gustavo, which is one of the leaders, have already that experience about what can organizing do in his industry and brought up and start bringing more people uh, toward this process. Right, and can you uh, talk about the the measures that you got city council to pass? It, it seems like uh, it, they were pretty sympathetic by by the time this this matter came to a, a vote in September, and the mayor was eager to sign it as well. What, what were you all able to uh, persuade them to come on board with? 
So what we did is, like, as I said, this is an industry that for years have zero regulations, zero rights. These workers have zero rights. So what we did it was kind of like establish a floor, a basic framework of working conditions in the industry. And it's, and it's unfortunate, I have to say this, but number one is like, if you deliver for any of these apps, whatever the um, restaurant or location or store, you can use the RASU, right? Um, something, for example, establish a minimum pay, similar that they have the taxi drivers um, that work for Uber Lyft. Another provision is to for them to be empowered to limit the distance that they travel. Some of these workers sometimes for a delivery of $3, they're traveling between three and six miles uh, to make a simple delivery. Another is, for example, for new people coming in into this industry, companies have to give them the insulated bags. Some of these bags that you see in the street are costing between $60 to $120. And the workers have to pay for themselves, even that they're doing free propaganda for the apps, right? Uh, you see where this is, Grubhub, Uber, right? All this, the workers have to pay. Um, and the other provision um, was the part about making sure that workers don't get charged a fee to get paid. Companies were charging fees for workers to get paid on a weekly basis, which is incredible, right? They were working to pay a fee to get paid. So we, <laughs> we, move, we remove that fee. Apps cannot be charging fees to the workers to get paid on a weekly basis. Yeah, that's, that's incredible that they would uh, charge the workers money to get paid the money that they were owed. Uh, um, what what would y'all like to see going forward? What what do you feel uh, still remains to be done to really, uh, you know, fully, uh, you know, upgrade the the working uh, conditions of the? Well, it's a lot to it's a lot to be done, but this is the first step of many steps, right? Uh, okay. This is we'll set a floor, um, as I said, where there was no floor. Um, the next thing that we're moving is to the issue to address the issue of accidents. There's a huge amount of accidents on the street for workers as they do deliveries. Um, many of people that I employ um, enjoy a worker's comp. These workers have zero worker's comp, so they have to come up with their own money to actually um, try to get better. But not only that, many of them actually go back to work um, injured, and we have to figure out a way to do that. And the other, the other two is the issue about fatalities, their families that have lost their lost one. How do we bring them home? And the part of safety, we need to make sure that workers um, are not uh, victims of death. And that's something that we have to move forward. So city is the first step. We're definitely heading um, to a bigger conversations at the state level and also with the apps of how do we address it. But everybody has to be part of this conversation. Right. And I mean, I think also uh, for a lot of New Yorkers who are pedestrians, the these uh, bikes that move at a high speed, I think the the standard uh, sort of aero bike uh, moves at about like 28 yep. miles an hour. Um, is there any way to address that? Because I, I, I think maybe have the bikes go slower. I know that could affect the earnings of the workers, but is there been any thought given to uh, how sure. we can uh, ensure pedestrian safety as well as the safety of the the workers on their bicycles. Right, and this is why uh, the the the, um, the bill that I uh, I just mentioned about the distance it's addressing oh. trying to address that right because right now the workers 
are at the mercy of the apps that they have to travel whatever they have to because many of them they cannot reject the delivery if not they will not be able to either get pay um, an hourly rate or they cannot even get scheduled for the next day so the legislation that we put forward is about have the worker be able to empower to determine do i want to travel one mile right many of these workers work already in zones and we call it work zones neighborhoods right and they mm-hmm. want to stay in the neighborhoods, but the ones that are basically moving them out of the neighborhoods are the apps uh, because of the algorithm. So what this bill would try to do is keep everybody in the same location so they don't have to travel long distance and don't have to go at a high speed, right? Because the challenge that we have would be, and, and as a customer, I will say, when that worker gets to you, to your home, they don't. sometimes they don't come from your corner. There's sometimes they're coming from another borough. And you as a customer expect that that delivery get there on time. If not, you're not going to tip them. So this is why many of them are running and trying to do as fast as possible. Because if I don't get there on time, the app are penalized me. But then the uh, customer will not give me a tip, right? And and I will tell you, the base pay for each delivery that these workers get paid are between $1 and $2.50. So if you want to make 20 bucks, you have to make at least five deliveries and this is why you see them running back and forth right and this is why the, the legislation is is a, is a first step to address it. right and uh needless to say for uh, any of our listeners who uh, rely on the delivery workers to deliver meals uh please tip generously these people have uh, more than earned it and uh um i mean they have incredibly difficult jobs uh so uh and, but but i will add something um Make sure, take five minutes when you see that delivery, say hello, and make sure, can you open your app and make sure that the tip that, because many people tip generously, the problem is that money's not getting to workers. So if customers are going to tip using the app, just stop them, give them one minute and say, hey, can you check if the $2 or $3 that I gave you, it's on your account? Because many of this workers, that's what they have. They, they, I know they tip, but many of this money is not showing up into their accounts. So they're going home empty-handed. Okay, that's important to know. Well, we'll have to leave it there, but uh, Hildeline Colon-Hernandez of the Workers' Justice Project, thank you so much for joining us this evening on WBAI Radio. Thank you very much. Okay. All right, we'll be back with more after this short break.
down by Gil Scott Heron. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI Radio 99.5 FM. I'm your host, John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. Before we continue with our second segment, I want to encourage everyone who can do so uh, to give generously to WBAI and help keep shows like this on the air. We'll also have a great roster of shows throughout the rest of the evening. Uh, starting with the WBAI Evening News at 6 p.m. But all these shows require the support of our listeners. This is community radio. There's no major corporations. There's no uh, weapons makers or petroleum companies or pharmaceutical companies uh, uh, sponsoring this, this station or the Pacifica radio network that we're a part of. It's listeners like you that have kept WBAI on the air for more than 60 years. But we uh, always need that support to to continue. And you can give by calling 212-209-2950. Again, that's 212-209-2950. Or you can also go straight to give number 2 WBAI.org. You can uh, make a one-time donation or sign up as a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 a month. You'll be eligible for all sorts of uh, excellent uh, benefits. Again, that's give number two, WBAI.org. Become a WBAI buddy today. And if you want to phone in your donation or uh, call in to sign up as a WBAI buddy, again, that phone number is 212-209-2950. It's your generous support that makes possible uh, guests like the uh, guest we just had, Hilaline Colon Hernandez from the Workers' Justice Project, and also our, our next guest, uh, uh, Baravi Desai of the New York uh, Worker, uh, New York Taxi Workers Alliance, uh, which is uh, a group that's uh, been fighting for, for more than 20 years now for uh, the rights of uh, taxi workers and and all of their struggles in New York, the the people that uh, get us around town when we and uh, right now that uh, uh, there's taxi workers, taxi drivers that are in the 17th day of an encampment outside of City Hall. Uh, they've been decimated uh, by the city's uh, uh, shift toward Lyft and Uber. Uh, many uh, taxi drivers. Uh, it became uh, owners of the medallions. It's sort of a, a a step, you know, a step up the the economic ladder historically. But those medallions uh, lost most of their value in the last decade when the city streets were inundated uh, with Uber and and Lyft uh, cars that didn't uh, have to obtain the medallion. And uh, we're going to talk about that more now about uh, 
how the taxi workers got in this terrible situation and what they're doing uh, fighting for justice uh, with this ongoing 24-7 encampment outside of City Hall uh, with uh, Barave Desai. Uh, Barave, are you there? I am. Hi, good good afternoon. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Uh, so um, before we get into the the background of uh, uh, of what's happened to the taxi workers over these uh, recent years with the collapse of the value of their medallions, can you give us an update on the latest uh, that's going on at the encampment on the west side of City Hall on the sidewalk uh, right along uh, Broadway? Yes, this is our 388. We've been out there, as you said, uh, this is day 17. And, um, you know, before our 24-hour protest started, we'd been already protesting nonstop. We were doing nine-day cycles outside of Gracie Mansion and then City Hall. Prior to that, we had shut down the Brooklyn Bridge, the 59th Street Bridge. Um, we've shut down the front offices of number of the medallion banks and lenders, you know, that um, we've simultaneously been organizing against to, to relieve families from this crushing debt. So this has been a campaign that has been nonstop for a couple of years now. Um but, you know, given the urgency of it, like we cannot wait any longer for City Hall to to resolve this crisis. On top of that, the city came out with a program that is a, a Band-Aid that actually it doesn't, it's, it, to be honest, it's even less than a Band-Aid. It's going to, it, it really, it puts up the facade that the city is taking some serious action, but in reality, they're not doing anything to help fix this crisis. And so um, given that the city came out with a counter program to ours, we really have felt the urgency. And so we decided to turn our protests into a 24-hour camp outside of City Hall. Right. And can you give us the backstory on how uh, the taxi drivers uh, became so badly indebted when the medallions historically have been uh, uh, sort of a rung up the economic ladder for hardworking immigrants? Yes. And, you know, it's easy for, for people to kind of think that it's all been about, you know, competition, you know, from Uber and Lyft. But the story is much more complicated and it's much longer than that. The city of New York auctions off new medallions. And so this all the money, the value that you hear about, all of that actually goes back to the city. In fact, in one 12-year period under the Bloomberg administration, the city made um, $855 million from these sales. Well, through those years, uh, there is a Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times investigation, which found that the city, in fact, engaged in fraud with the drivers because they um, – inflated the value of the medallion so that people would bid higher and the city could make more money. They turned a blind eye to a number Hello? Barvi, are you there? 
after the housing crisis, they were given a red carpet to loan directly to yellow cab owner drivers. Um, and, and then those banks worked with industry brokers to really push and prod the drivers to make these investments. And then those same city officials allowed in Uber and Lyft without regulation. So for example, even though the number of yellow cabs is capped by the state and the city, they allowed in Uber and Lyft um, up to 85,000 cars uh, compared to like 13,000 yellow cabs at that time before they instituted a cap on, on the number of Uber and Lyft vehicles. So it's been this cycle of, you know, overinflating the value of the medallion and then crashing that value. And in the process, the city making out like bandits and so did the banks and the lenders. You know, only the drivers have really been stuck in this lifelong debt. And can you talk about the impact this has had on the drivers? I mean, some have uh, even taken their lives. Oh, it's just been devastating. I mean, imagine that, you know, yes, there have been nine drivers that have committed suicide over the economic despair. I mean, there's just been such a crushing race to the bottom over the past several years, Um, you know, particularly after Uber and Lyft entered the market and, so livery, black car, you know, green cab and yellow cab drivers who had some level of security over their income, you know, saw all of that disappear uh, very quickly. Uber and Lyft drivers themselves had in the city in an independent study found were earning below the minimum wage. So we had nine driver suicides in 2018. Among them were three owner drivers. Now, even though yellow cab medallion owner drivers, you know, they own the medallion and the cab, even though they represent only 2% of the overall workforce, they were uh, the majority of the drivers who had committed suicide. And, and I can't tell you about the number of drivers you know, who've passed away at young age from heart attacks and strokes and all the families talk about, you know, drivers um, having lost their health because of the level of stress from this debt. You know, I mean, debt is just generally a problem throughout our economy, right? And you hear so many studies from even like the Center for Disease Control that's talked about debt having a very particular demoralizing effect on people, you know, where, you know, when, when you live through poverty day to day, uh, there, you know, there, there are certain programs that can, that, that are supposed to be bridges for, to allow people to come out of that poverty. I mean, we, we know that, you know, lifelong poverty is, is a serious issue in our economy, with debt, though, people, there's a feeling of, I am handcuffed to this poverty. I have no chance of ever getting out of it. And that despair really sets in. And that economic crisis has led to, you know, human tragedy. Right. I mean, it's really incredible. We think so many of these uh, uh, drivers had worked for decades to obtain the medallions and then at in their 50s or 60s to find themselves with uh, impossible debts and uh, no uh, intergenerational wealth to pass on to their families. Uh, Yes. And, you know, many who invested in the medallion saw it as their retirement that either, you know, that because the value kept going up, 
that um, they'd be able to sell it and live off that equity or that they could rent it out and even continue to work part-time if they were, you know, retired part-time. All that has now been lost. And so, as you said, we have members in our 60s, 70s, even in their 80s who are looking at a debt beyond their lifetime now. Mm. And uh, we'll have to wrap up here in a minute, but uh, can you talk about uh, your – Real quickly, your demands uh, on the city, on the mayor yes. and city council, what are y'all demanding and what kind of response are you getting? So we have very broad popular support. We have a lot of support even among elected officials. Who we need support from still is the mayor. Um, the mayor assigned the Taxi and Limousine Commission to come up with the way to give the owner drivers leverage at the table to bring down the debts. And they basically have failed that assignment. All they came up with was a grant program, which does not substantially reduce the debt to a point that people can actually survive it. Um, they keep bragging that there, that there's going to be some relief. But when you're, when the average debt is at $550,000 and the market value is less than a hundred thousand, even if you relieve it by 200,000, which is what the TLC brags about, it still does not transform the actual crisis. So we've been calling for a city backed guarantee. So the city could say to the lenders that they will guarantee the loans, remove the personal guarantees that exist, because right now, due to the personal guarantees, when you default, which many do because it's too high to pay, um, the banks then go after your homes. They put liens on your bank accounts to garnish your future wages. You know, so you're never out of this crisis or you have thousands that have already filed for bankruptcy. And so if there's a city guarantee, the city would be the guarantor. If there is a default, the bank would resell that medallion to a new buyer. And if there's still a balance left on that loan, only then the city has a cost to pay. And because through the guarantee, we would be able to leverage to get the banks to lower the debts to like $145,000, the cost of this guarantee is not more than like $3 million a year for the next 30 years, um, which for the city of New York with an annual budget of $96 billion, it is a minuscule cost. We need the city council to step up. The On October 31st, the city's budget modification is due. We're calling on the council to not um, pass that modification, to use their leverage on the mayor, to stand, you know, to add their voices to assembly members, senators, congress members, including Senator Schumer, to say that they're standing with the drivers. The city must add this guarantee so that this crisis can be resolved once and for all. Okay. Well, we'll have to leave it there, but, uh, this is a story we'll continue to follow, and I assume that encampment's going to be there for a while, or as long as it needs to be. Until victory. We are not giving up. There's too much at risk here. Please come and join us 24-7, Broadway and Murray at City Hall. Call the mayor. You know, Tweet at the mayor. Please add your voice to this fight. Okay. Barbie Desai from the New York Taxi Workers Alliance, thank you so much for joining us this evening on WBAI Radio. Thank you. Okay. Uh, we're going to take a short break here. And when we come back, we're going to talk about labor cinema. Uh, the Workers Unite Film Festival is back on the big screen. 
starting later this week with all sorts of uh, amazing uh, labor film made by and for workers. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more with the executive director of the film festival and a couple of the, the directors of films that will be screening. As we go marching, marching in the beauty of the day, a million darkened kitchens, a thousand mill lofts gray, are touched with all the radiance that a sudden sun discloses. For the people hear us singing, bread and roses, bread and roses as we go marching marching we battle to for men for they are women's children and we bother them again our lives shall not be sweated from birth until life closes That was Bread and Roses by Judy Collins. You're listening to the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. And the third and final segment of our labor-themed show this evening, uh, we're going to talk about uh, labor at the movies. And we we have uh, three guests to join us to talk about the upcoming Workers Unite Film Festival that will put uh, the stories uh, by and for uh, labor on the big screen at Cinema Village Theater starting on Friday. And uh, uh, first of all, I want to welcome uh, Andrew Tilson. We're also going to uh, hear in a couple of moments from a couple of uh, directors of, fil- of those films, uh, Patricia Nazario and Peter Finley. But uh, Andrew, welcome to the show. Welcome to WBAI Radio. Hi, John. Thanks for having us on. Great you to hear you. So uh, can you tell us uh, and tell our listeners a little bit about the Workers Unite Film Festival, why uh, why you do it, and uh, uh, what you all have uh, in the works for, for this year's uh, film festival after having to uh, do it last year on, only on uh, uh, virtually? Right. I mean, we're excited. We're nervous. We don't know what to expect. Like everybody else right now, we're in a changing situation, it seems, day to day. We, uh, this is our 10th season, so we're very excited that we've survived 10 years. We started 10 years ago with the concept that New York City, which has one of the largest union memberships uh, percentage-wise in the country, did not have a worker labor film festival. And so we wanted to bring that to New York. We started that with the idea not only of having a festival in New York, but linking it globally to festivals around the world that deal with worker and labor issues, which we've done through something called the Global Labor Film Festival Alliance. And we are thrilled to be back at Cinema Village at 22 East 12th Street off University from the 8th to the 14th, with I believe about 45 different films and programs which have amazing films. Two of the directors are here with us today, Patricia Nazario and Peter Finley is coming from Canada with a film about uh, called Company um, Company Town. Right, we're going to talk about those films more in a couple of minutes. But uh, yeah. can you can you uh, tell us uh, 
So what's the criteria for the films that get accepted to this uh, film festival? What, what are you looking for? We have a kind of a wide open. We, we try and look for films that were not only be um, about labor worker issues, everything from films called Organizing, How to Organize a Union, a short directly about how to organize a union, but to personal stories about workers around the world struggling and fighting to gain lives of dignity, to organize and fight back against uh, people who exploit them, about the owners, basically, who exploit them. And um, the criteria is that the film should be extremely watchable. It should be entertaining, informing. It might not be uh, like Game of Thrones or something like that, but it will certainly make you think and enlighten you as to uh, the history and the what's happening in, in an area, for instance, food trucks that Patricia is here, that you've never really thought about when you look at a food truck or you go up to buy something from a food truck. So, right. Um, yeah, on that note, uh, we're gonna, we'll uh, pivot here to Patricia. And um, we also have a, a short clip from uh, uh, her movie, Backstreet to the American Dream, uh, queued up to go in a minute. Um, before we go, that, go to that, uh, Patricia, uh, welcome to WBAI Radio. There, Patricia. I just saw her. About now, is that better? Yep. Yeah. Hey, thanks hey, for, thanks for uh, joining us again. Uh, we're gonna. I, I think we're gonna go in a moment in, uh, to uh, a clip from from your your movie. But real quickly, can you tell us about the the concept and and, and why you took on this uh, uh, subject of uh, food trucks? Uh, and I think your film is set in Los Angeles, but of course we have a lot of food trucks here in, in New York as well. Yeah, food trucks are a global phenomenon. The industry is valued at almost $3 million now. It started here and it moved here in 2008. Uh, and I was just out doing a daily news story. I was a reporter at a local radio station at the time. And they sent me out to do a story. And I saw what was happening and it just spoke more to me. It was more than just a daily news story. And um, so eventually, like six months later, I resigned from that position to pursue this and, and tell this story. Okay. And uh... I would say, John, that one of the things that attracted us this is a good example. It wasn't just a story about food trucks, though. Uh, she's selling it short a little bit. It's really a story that connects what the pretty much white power structure in LA did to really keep people of color from gaining a foothold in the American dream and how that links up to this very day with the inequity that is built into a system that is basically racist in many ways. Mm. Yeah. I think we heard a, a version of that a few minutes ago with the, the taxi drivers and, and their situation here. In, there you in go. Very much. BRV, who we've worked with for many years, of course, but I think that the um, criteria across the board is that these films made by really just amazing, hardworking, brilliant directors actually pick up on themes that tie their stories across the board to the struggles that we've been fighting for the last, you know, 50 plus years to gain some sense of equity in our society. And we're still not there, obviously. Right. Um, I'm not sure we have, quite have that uh, clip ready to go um, for, uh, for Patricia's film. But uh, in, in the meantime, I also want to bring uh, Peter Finley on, on the show. Uh, Peter, welcome to WBAI Radio. Thanks for having me, John. I'm delighted to be part of the festival. Okay. Um, 
So actually, if we can uh, hold, hold on one sec, I, I think our, our clip from um, um, the Backstreet to the American Dream is ready to go. And we realized the impact television would have, and we basically parked in front of the bar at NoHo, and there was a line that went about three blocks down. Now there are two factions of this industry. But the conundrum is these two different types of trucks don't operate in the same way. Estamos en un problema muy crucial de las cosas que se están avecinando. The trucks that's already been out there that's run by mostly Mexicans or Latinos. I wonder how this gourmet thing has been affecting their business. Okay, uh, Patricia, can you give us a little bit more of a sense of uh, what, what's going on there in, in the film? It sounds like it's a complex situation with the food trucks out in Los Angeles. Well, it's uh, the base of the story. What we get to is this point of economic discrimination. And that speaks to uh, food trucks in Los Angeles cannot be, or to this, to this day have not been admitted to any chambers of commerce. So when we tell the two stories of a pop culture truck versus that traditional lonchera, which is what they call the Spanish community, you see the pop culture truck. They won the great food truck race. They have all this fanfare. They're on social media. Like a year or two later, they have their own brick and mortar place. Boom. And they're, of course, members of their local chamber of commerce. And then you look at the other side. The Mexican immigrant came over illegally, had a child. She left back in Nayarit. And it just... So it speaks to the sector, this immigrant sector, which is largely Mexican here in Los Angeles, that these people, this traditional side, not one has ever been admitted to a chamber of commerce. And, you know, every city has a chamber of commerce. So I, I went to a few. I went to the National Chamber of Commerce, the Greater L.A. Chamber of Commerce, uh, and another one. And uh, the, the most information I got is it's unclear whether they all operate under the same uh, guidelines, policies, but the only food truck company, only food truck company, not say a Jack in the Box that now has a food truck, but someone that started off as a food truck, the only one that had ever been admitted to a chamber of commerce, it was the greater LA chamber of commerce. And that was the pop culture boom, the, the truck that started the whole revolution, the Kogi Korean barbecue truck. Okay. Uh, we could probably talk about this uh, some more, but we, we have another film we want to uh, delve into a little bit before we have to uh, wrap up the show, and that's uh, Company Town, uh, directed by Peter Finley. Uh, Peter, can you give us a quick synopsis of on, on this uh, movie and why you made it and uh, uh, why you think uh, New Yorkers uh, who care about labor would uh, want to come out and see this? Sure. Um, well, basically, uh, it's a film about a town just uh, down the highway from Toronto, a place called Oshawa, Ontario, that was essentially the Detroit or maybe the Flint, Michigan of Canada. At its peak, uh, the factory there, the plant had um, almost 24,000 uh, assembly line workers in the 1980s. Uh, and then Canada, much like the U.S. and Mexico, were thrust into this big period of globalization and, and free trade negotiations in the 80s and 90s. There was a lot of resistance from the labor movement in Canada. In the end, 
our neoliberal governments voted in favor of creating these um, free trade agreements. And as a result, over the last 30 or 40 years, there's been a massive downsizing in the uh, manufacturing sector in Canada. So we went from 24,000 workers in Oshawa to the point where I entered uh, the situation there where I was teaching, actually, um, at a local community college. And uh, the workforce was then down to only 2,500 assembly line workers by that point. So they'd had a massive job loss already. And on the 100th anniversary of the plant, which was in 2019, General Motors announced that they were shuttering the place. So it went right. from 24,000 at its peak to zero, basically, um, is where I enter the film. And, and uh, quickly here, what, what, what does the film try to convey? And, well, and how convey- do you go about telling that story in a way that's uh, engaging and yeah. memorable for people? Well, essentially, it conveys the the unmitigated uh, power of multinational corporations to uh, negatively impact community. And uh, the way we told it was to look at the uh, efforts of the um, uh, union to fight back, to organize the community, and then the impacts it has, not just, you know, in terms of, um, you know, the, the struggle with General Motors, but also internally within those communities. So we follow rank-and-file workers, we also follow um, the union leadership, and we see some of the tensions that inevitably emerge when, uh, you know, bad things happen and there's traumatic job loss. Everybody suffers. So, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a tragedy, this film, <laughs> rather than a, uh, a feel-good film, because in the end, the plant, uh, spoiler alert, does in fact close. But there's, there is a bit of a, an update to it, which I'll tell you about later. Okay. Uh- we actually have to go here in a minute. Uh, uh, Andrew, any any final thoughts on these two films and the other films that will be screening at Cinema? Well, I mean, Theaters besides these Friday? two powerful, wonderful films on opening night, we have 9 to 5, the story of the movement upon which the Hollywood movie was based. So it's all about the efforts to organize secretaries back in the 70s, basically, correct? Um, the other thing I wanted to say is that for anybody who comes in and says, I'm a WBAI supporter, the tickets are $5 at the door. So we offer you that, and we'd love to see as many of you as possible. Take a look online at workersunitefilmfestival.org. There's lots of different places you can buy tickets through that online link. Uh, okay. Actually, I, I, I'm told we have a little bit more time to, uh, to talk. I thought we were going to have to cut out at uh, 5.55, but we're actually going to go to 5.58 and continue talking about the Workers Unite Film Festival, uh, which returns to the big screen in, in New York. Um, I would just add, uh, John, just I want to make a quick, uh, after Patricia's wonderful film, it's a beautiful lead into a film that we're showing that's a really, it was another massive project called Drills of Liberation, for the folks from both Puerto Rico and care about what happened to Puerto Rico over the last 50-plus years. It's a film that details another side of that story of totally destroying an economy, creating austerity just to suck billions of dollars into Wall Street, into hedge funds. Brilliant film, brilliantly done, um, a massive project. And, of course, the hurricane in Puerto Rico just highlighted how disgusting Wall Street and American corporations are and being vultures and really eating the guts of an economy that was already under struggle. So that's on the same day, that day that um, Backstreet to American Dream is playing, Drills of Liberation right after it is a fantastic follow-up. So 
come on out and see a bunch of really powerful movies. They're not all Cinderella stories, unfortunately. That's not where it's at. But they will motivate you to get off your ass and do something about some of these issues. Are are there any uh, Cinderella stories? There are some Cinderella stories. Go ahead, Patricia. (laughs) Yeah. I was just going to add that we are also uh, being partnered by Make the Road New York. They're taking the time to come out. They're going to have a table and do education around the excluded workers fund. So they'll be helping with applications, answering questions, helping people get those funds, which is important coming out of the COVID shutdown. And they'll be with us uh, in the Q&A following the screening of Factory to the American Dream. So we're making it more of an event that can actually educate and inform people. Educate and motivate, right? That's our goal. Um, I would say that we actually have... uh, We have 15 seconds. Short films by students from um, Electricians, IBE Local 3, about workers' lives and their union lives. On Tuesday the 12th, raw stuff, films from the front lines. Okay, we'll Uh, have to leave, leave it there. Uh, if you want to find out more about the film festival you can also go to the Workers Unite uh, Film Festival website That's tell us the URL real quick Peter Uh, it's workersunitefilmfestival.org okay Uh, alrighty well we'll have to leave it there but thank you so much Andrew Tilson for joining us from Workers Unite Film Festival also uh, directors uh, Patricia Nazario and Peter Finley have two of the films that will be screening at the film festival um from October 8th to 14th at Cinema Village Theater in uh, Lower Manhattan on uh, 12th Street. And uh, we'll have to wrap it up and uh, call it a night for the show. Uh, thanks to Reggie Johnson, our board operator, also our producer, Amba Gagarian. And uh, we'll be back same time next week. And uh, also one more time, that phone number to give to WBAI, 212-209-2950, support community radio. Jump up on this I guess that's why you like it, baby Come and get this Takes a lot to it's me, baby Give it all you got